Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. afternoon. Is the lighting okay for everybody? Um, you can read the notes. Does anybody not have a copy of the text? You don't have a copy? Do we have extras? Or you can also just share with somebody. Before we jump into our study this afternoon, I wanted to just uh, acknowledge that uh, today is the birthday of Ida. So happy birthday. It's very exciting. Yesterday you looked so young. Yeah, in one night. So Sorry for that. It, it's a downhill slide from here. <laughs> Would it be okay if we just jumped in and then just see where we go? Yeah, okay. Um, so we're in the third chapter, which is the chapter everybody always skips, but uh, it's become my favorite chapter. Um, so here, uh, Patanjali says, and, and as I'm speaking, I want you to just try and connect this with your own experience, as I said yesterday. It's like, oh, is this true for me? Does this relate? Is this what's happening in my own experience? Is this possible? Do I have tastes of this? Is this a state, or is this something that I feel uh, more temporally, more instantly, that passes? So, um, she says here, um, Dharana, locks, okay, I would translate this differently. Okay, so here's, here's how I would translate it. I think there's all kinds of problems with this translation. So the first thing is, um, we're defining chitta not as consciousness, which is very abstract and kind of a problematic English word. Uh, if you know a neuroscientist, then they can probably tell you that they have no idea what consciousness is either. Um, but um, I think it's more helpful as a meditator 
to think of chitta as your attention span. Okay? <clears throat> and your binding, banda is to bind, you're binding your attention to the impermanent field that's being presented. So the word desha, unfortunately, always gets translated as point. You know, like, um, you get this with drishti also, that Iyengar translates it as point, so you get like nine different gazing points. But the word desha actually means a field, like Bangladesh. It's the field of Bangla. And I think that it's an important distinction because the, the field that we're aware of is kind of a wide, impermanent, um, non-static space, you see. So for example, the field of thought is not a point, it's a field of thought. The breath is not a point, it's, it's a field of sensation. So I think that it's really helpful, and the reason is, is because in English, when you use the word concentration, it connotes this kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? That like angular, down inward activity of the mind, even though we don't even know what that is. But when we think of um, uh, um, yoking attention to a field, I think we, we, we can maintain a sense of relaxed posture. And the key to developing a meditation, as we explored yesterday, is balancing tranquility with alertness. Right? This deep calmness, but without letting the body start to get passive. With this real sense of alertness. So I see your hand is up. Question? Um, can we do an analogy to like uh, physics? And can it, can it be that it's a field and a point? Um, and if you do focus on it, the field becomes a point? A point? Sure. I mean, and I can't... you're trying to do, uh, not the opposite, but you're still trying to maintain, um, I guess that's why you say 50-50, you're still trying to spread it as much as possible? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I can't say whether it's accurate because I don't know anything no. about physics, but that sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> So, so the important point here is that dharana, because we've already explored the previous limbs, so dharana is the experience of yoking your attention to the field of sensory experience. Okay, so maybe it's the field of sound or the field of breathing. But the most important thing is that you've decided intentionally that there's a field you're going to yoke your attention to. Okay? And every time the attention slips off, we bring the, intent, the attention and the intention back to that field. Maybe the field is just this big, and it's just around the tips of the nostrils, the aperture of the nostrils. We bring it back again and again and again. The important thing to understand about dharana, which is the seventh limb of yoga, is that it's impermanent. So the attention is always going to slip off. So I said it yesterday and I'm going to say it again, but you can't maintain it. 
because it's impermanent. So the point of the seventh limb is whether you can come back to the field or not. So I hope that you're reflecting in your experience meditating how you slip off the object, you slip off the field, you slip off the breath, and then your attention starts doing what I call, uh, so you know the term chittavriti? So the way I've been translating it these days is I call it time traveling. Okay? Because what happens is your attention goes off into the future and starts creating a self in the future, or it goes back into the past. And the interesting thing about distraction is it, it is it's always a form of time travel. And whenever you time travel, it, the problem is not that you're distracted from the present moment. I mean, if you take an MBSR program, they'll you know they'll remind you all the time: come back to the present moment, come back to the present moment. Because when you're not present, you're stressed. But from this perspective, there's a more existential dimension, which is every time you keep going into the future and keep going into the past, you're reinforcing a sense of identity that becomes habitual, you see? Like the problem with all the storytelling habits is not just that you're not present, it's that you're reinforcing a theoretical self that doesn't actually exist. It's a, it's a, it's a fiction that you're writing out of habit, you see? So, so the point of dharana is that, that's why I don't like these terms like concentration, locking, point. It, it's a relaxation into the openness of the present, and it's a training to come back again and again and again and again and again and again. And it's really hard to do. And the example I like to use a lot is the training that I, I did with my son. Um, every night before bed, we used to read Dr. Seuss. Do you guys have Dr. Seuss here? Okay. Dr. Seuss is amazing. All bedtime stories are amazing. Moomin is amazing. <coughs> the problem with Moomin or Dr. Seuss or whatever you're reading is after a while, you've read it so many times, you're going to lose your mind. Do you know what I'm talking about? And the kid picks the book and you're like, oh, no, no, not that book. How about this other book? And they're like, they're so insistent and you have to read that book again and again and again. So there's this really cool thing that you can do where you can kind of dissociate, where you can actually like read the book, turn the page, keep reading the story, but you're not there at all. And you're just, comp you're time traveling and you're like planning whatever, which show you're going to watch on Netflix when they go to sleep and like, how even though you don't really want to read this book, you're reading it, and how they're kind of cute, but really you just want to watch Downton Abbey. And it's like, but Downton Abbey is like not the best because there's no sex in it. And like, you keep going. So she still hasn't had a baby. Whatever. Do you guys watch Downton Abbey? Okay. Don't even start because it's really, really downhill. It gets worse. Every season gets worse and worse. I made all of these Downton Abbey jokes, and then uh, recently I, I, I was teaching in a group, and one of the women was an actress in the show, and it was really embarrassing. So, um, I have a lot of these moments, actually. <laughs> so I have to be careful what I say. So anyways, um, where was I? 
Oh yeah, so you're reading Dr. Seuss. So I'm reading Dr. Seuss. And then when I used to get into that zone when I'm reading, but I wasn't there, my son, who would be right beside me in bed, he would take my chin, he would grab it, he would turn it towards him, he'd look at me, and then he'd turn it back. <laughs> it's like he could feel that I was checked out. Just like, you know when you're on the phone with someone, and you can tell they're reading their emails? Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, would you pay attention? They're like, I'm totally paying attention. But you can like feel them scrolling through their Facebook page, you know, while you're talking to them. <clears throat> so to sum up, the seventh limb of yoga is the process of training to come back again and again and again. Then... <clears throat> We move on to the eighth limb of yoga. Do you see the word in the first uh, line that's dharana? And do you see how that word changes in the second line and it's dhyana? So dhyana is when you become absorbed in the field. So there isn't so much slipping off again. So it's kind of like today, this afternoon, probably you're slipping off a lot. Come back again and again and again. But if you've ever been on a meditation retreat, which I recommend to do at least one time a year, when you're on a meditation retreat, after a couple days of slipping off, you tend to, even if you don't have the best form, you start to have experiences where you don't slip off for so long, and you just kind of get held a little more in the present. And there's something that happens where there's just a kind of breathing and spaciousness, but the, the distractions just don't have anywhere to land. Like they can't get in there. And this is called dhyana. So it's not so much you train in it, it's just if you keep doing the mindfulness, then the dhyana starts to appear. And dhyana, when it when these teachings go from India via Afghanistan to China, gets translated as the word chan, which then when those teachings go to Japan is where you get the word zen, which comes from this uh, teaching, which is um, the way that the training of attention opens us up to a more stable, um, consistent, uh, sense of spaciousness, where the distractions just just don't make their way in. Does that does that make sense a little bit? <clears throat> then line three, which is, we need a month to unpack line three because it has some really interesting stuff going on it. But then Patanjali is saying. <clears throat> When this happens, where there's this more absorbed experience in the meditative practice, then there's no self that's having the experience. Do you understand what I mean by that? So it's like, so let me just walk you through my experience of it. So I'm breathing. I can see the breath there in my nose. Oh, that's really visual. I let go of that. Oh, the breath is a little bit shallow. 
breathing. Hey, let go of that. It's just like, just feel, re- oh. And then just feeling the pleasure of the breath. And then something happens where I'm not really noticing the breath anymore. There's just such pure feeling of breathing that it's not happening to me. It's just breathing, but there's no me that I'm referring the breathing to. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like, it's getting so still that the me maker that makes a story about the experience just gets really quiet. Okay? And this is called samadhi. Sam means... Well, it it can mean one, but it also is the same as the word S-U-M, like the coming together. It's also the same as the word C-O-M in English, like community, to come together, Adi as one. So it's the experience where where the, the self and the object just kind of merge. And all of us have had this experience when we were little kids. All of us, when we were little kids, either in nature or listening to music, one day... Oh, interesting. So, one day you were a little kid, and um, you heard somebody name a musician. Van Halen? Vangelis. Vangelis. Yes. I don't know who Vangelis is. Oh, have you seen Blade Runner? Oh, is that Vangelis? Yeah. Oh. Okay, you heard Vangelis. Someone. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like you just get transported. Do you know this experience where it's like your whole world opens up? And it's so open and you're so present that there's no you there. Right? And you have this experience that's so much bigger than the sense of self. And it never leaves you for the rest of your life. Or it's in the natural world somehow. And I think those experiences are so deep that they motivate you to come to workshops like this. Right? But the culture is designed, I think, to squeeze them out of us. At least not to refine them. So it's like, you know, it's like when you're young and you, I don't know if anyone here, you know, does LSD or did LSD or whatever. And you have some like really cool spiritual experience and then it ends and then that's it. But it doesn't actually like change the personality because we don't have much in our social lives to take those kind of experiences and work with them. So that they, they, they're, they're driven deeper into our hearts rather than just being special experiences. You know what I mean? So, that's samadhi. And our practice in meditative practice is to settle and settle and settle so we can sustain those experiences even though they're impermanent. So samadhi is not a state it's just another fleeting experience, but it's one that reorganizes, or as I said yesterday, it gives you a new reference point in your personality. You see? 
Now, yeah. I have noticed that you haven't said that you could become the breath, which sometimes becomes my experience. I kind of become the breath. I just yeah. ends to <coughs> cease to exist, and I just expands and yeah. goes back. Is that? Yeah. That's kind of what I was trying to get at. Okay. Yeah. 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 The way I said it was, there's just breathing, and there's no me that's breathing. Yeah. Um, can I just jump into three words here that are really important? Okay. Swa is self. Like your own self, your own sense of self. Arupa is form. Remember this exercise we were doing? And um, shunya means empty. So what this is getting at is that um, one of the things that we start to experience in stillness is we start to see and feel and intuit how the sense of self that we have is actually empty. And the question then is, empty of what? Well, it's actually empty of self. That the self is empty of self. Do you see? This is very, very, very confusing. The word shu is the same word as uh, swollen or pregnant. So when you say something is empty, it means that something is pregnant. Because if something is empty, it's empty of a core, of a core thingness. Just like when someone's pregnant, they're so full of life that they're empty of an inherent thingness. Does that make sense? There's no such thing as a thing. When you try and find a thing and you look really closely at it, it's so full of every other thing. So it's pregnant. But it's more helpful to describe that in the negative, which is that it's not a thing. It's empty of thingness, you see. Now, this is a Mahayana Buddhist teaching. Because this text comes a few centuries, as I've been telling you the history a little bit, after the death of the Buddha, after this second council uh, inspiration of the Bodhisattva. And when you go through translations of the Yoga Sutra, I guarantee they will never translate these words into English or Swedish as empty. Because it totally screws up the Vedanta framework that most of the translators come from because it's way too Buddhist. Just a little footnote in case you're interested. But it's a really, really important piece here is that one of the defining characteristics of samadhi is the insight, the recognition over time that the self that we thought was real, the soul that you think you have was just a story. And why did you need that story? Because we're fluid. We're more like water. 
than we want to be. And because of that, you need to tell yourself a story about permanence and about how you're permanent. So we're talking like deep in the personality structure, at the core, we're trying to create a sense of permanence, moment to moment to moment, because we can't handle the fact that things are as fluid as they are. And it seems like Patanjali is saying, the purpose or what's important about samadhi is not being blissed out. You know, the importance of samadhi is the insight, the insight that the self doesn't have a self. Are you saying emptiness is emptiness, form is form? No. I'm saying that the self doesn't have a self. <laughs> In other words, um, there's no such thing as an atom. There's no such thing as a beginning, <laughs> you see? And so um, the only reason, can we take this a little bit further? This has huge religious implications because the only reason why you need a theory of a self or a soul is to maintain your commitment to the mythology of reincarnation. Because to reincarnate, you have to have a soul. Because you need some essence that reincarnates. But if as you're meditating, you start recognizing how there isn't actually a self, that when you really examine it, it's just a kind of story you're creating, then out goes our theory of reincarnation. And in comes, I don't know. <laughs> and not only do I don't not know what's going to happen when I die, I don't even know what's going to happen in the next moment. I have no idea. And then in this space of not knowing comes compassion. Because then we don't know actually what the right thing to do is. And then... Uh, uh, there's more empathy and more compassion because I, I don't know. And as I said yesterday, this gets bodhisattvas really excited because then you're like, wow, I don't know, I can, I can serve people and I don't know how and, and that's exciting. <laughs> do, you get the, do, you get, do you get this a little bit here? Yeah. So, so to me, this is really kind of wild insight, which is that the core mechanism of your mind is to try in whatever way possible to frame your experience to make it more permanent, to make it seem more permanent. And this is really healthy. It's really important. You can't get rid of it. It's really, really important. You need to walk out on the street and go, that is a fire truck. It's moving towards me. You don't want to walk out and go, it's empty and free of form. And you'll be dead. You'll be a dead person. And people who can't create that kind of permanent structure have really, really intense 
psychiatric trouble because the personality just isn't structured in a way that helps them keep boundaries, you see. So you want to have this self and at the same time you want to see through it. You want to be able to see through it. You want both at the same time. And the more that you see through it, the better your sense of humor gets. <laughs> you know? And then people can like point things out to you about your personality <coughs> that are like really hard to take. And it's kind of interesting. In other words, you're not scared of yourself anymore. Because now you're kind of more open to experience because you see that this self that you and other people have created is totally manufactured. You know, it's totally manufactured. What a relief. Okay. And then it means, well, then I can kind of like perform this self however I want. But within boundaries, because I'm always boundaried by uh, my ancestry and my DNA, my society and so on. But, so this is like really good news. And we're only on the third line. We've got this amazing news about life that, that uh, this self that I thought that I was, I'm not that self. I'm not that self. And then all these habits that you have, you start to realize, oh my God, all these habits, they're not really mine. Like all these habits I have because I'm a man, like they're not mine. Yes, I have to take responsibility for them, absolutely. But like they're all internalized habits from the culture and from my parents and mostly because of George Clooney. <laughs> too much George Clooney and I have all these like ideas about how to be a man <laughs> do you guys have George Clooney in uh, Stockholm so I actually should be careful because someone's going to be like George Clooney's my brother <laughs> I got an email you know if you could not speak about me in the context of the Yoga Sutra, that would be really helpful. Um, so I just want to cover one more topic, and then. But but are there any questions yet? Otherwise, I just want to keep going. Philippa, you, you had your chance, so we'll just let someone else speak, and then we'll, we'll give you a chance. Yeah. It still comes a little bit back to what I was saying yesterday, that I still feel like the, once the self starts to deconstruct, then the desires yeah. and aversions do drop away. Mm. But then I almost struggle to interact when I have gone into like a serious meditative practice or gone on like a retreat, then I tend to have this like leaning towards asceticism and maybe that's just something within me that then is kind of like, okay, I don't really fit in so much. I want to kind of, of course, on an extreme level, go into a monastery or something. But have I you ever been to a monastery? I haven't lived in one. Just okay. Well, speaking as someone who has, uh -huh. it's like the most complicated social 
hell realm ever. You live in dormitories with other people, and they're like humans, <laughs> and they like eat in ways that you don't like eating, and they have like habits. And in other words, like you can't get out of relationship. There's no such thing as a cave you can go to. Anyways, nowadays they don't even have caves anymore. They're all like graffiti with broken glass and <laughs> shopping carts in them. So, so yes, there is a desire in us sometimes to turn away and want to retreat, and we need to honor that. There are phases of life where I think that that's really important. But at the same time, um, that's not what Patanjali is teaching here. That the goal of samadhi is the yamas, is ethical action. The, the, the purpose of samadhi is that as your heart starts to settle, you stop wanting to lie. You stop wanting to hurt other people. You, see? you start respecting the dignity of other people more deeply. So it's action-based. It's not, like he never says... Samadhi is the goal of yoga. So, which is to say, like, yes, if your inclination is you start getting into that zone and you're like, I just want to go on a long retreat, then you should do that if your life allows for that. But for most people that I know, you get into that zone and then that also becomes an impermanent phase. Then you're called to serve. You're at the monastery and a relative calls and says, I'm really ill, I need you to come home and look after me. So you do. So you, you still need the ego, like you said yesterday, then to help you act, but just these states of this fullness within. Yeah. The breath just give you a different perspective on when your ego starts speaking to you? The ego structure is an organism that's really, really important. So it has, so when spaciousness appears, the ego needs to be there because you want the ego to learn from the experience. You want the ego, like if you think of the ego as a person, you want the ego to be able to, to learn from this experience so the ego can become more transparent more porous, less fixed. So you want the ego around for that. It's just like when you have a lover and then, you know, I get this a lot because I travel. And like you go to Stockholm and there's this amazing thing and like you want your partner to see that. You know that, you know that experience? It's like, oh my God, I can't like fully just be in this because I want this person to be with me, you know. And then the opposite's true. Sometimes you're with them, you're like, I wish I was just alone. <laughs> so, you want your ego to be around for these experiences so that they're restructured. That's why I think when people have really dramatic mystical experiences and the ego is really tossed off to the side, they tend to only remain mystical experiences for those people and not super integrated in their life because it actually doesn't change anything. It's just an experience, another cool experience. Do you know what I mean by that? So, um, 
basically what the next section is about, because I, I think we're going to run out of time. But what the next section is saying is, maybe we'll just pick one line. <clears throat> How about line 9? So, as you practice, something happens called niroda. Have you heard of this term before? Yeah. Niroda is often mistranslated as cessation. But it doesn't really mean cessation of the stuff that comes up in practice. It means cessation of the way you misidentify with what comes up in your experience. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can't control what comes up in your experience. You can't control the weather. You can't control other people. You can't, there's, I mean, you can try and control all these things. Have you ever tried to control somebody? You ever done that before? This is like an amazing project to try and change somebody. Um, does it work? <clears throat> so you can't really like change what comes up in your life, but what you can change is the way you identify with it, or I would say even misidentify with it. Um, so that starts to really change when you get still. When you get still, experience starts happening without it being so personal. It's just experience happening, you see. And when this happens, it's happening in, this is such a cool word, kshana. Kshana is this. It's just a moment, okay? And this also comes from a Buddhist teaching called the Abhidharma, which says that in every kshana, there are actually 64 moments. <clears throat> like, I don't know how they found this, but I'm sure in fMRI sequences you can see all this. But, um, but the point is, is there's a lot going on in a moment of experience. But what you start to see is that every moment is actually your senses just processing sensory experience. But there's no self that continues moment to moment. The self is actually just constructed in these moments, like fireworks, you see? So that the self, like, isn't a thing. It's just like constructed in these moments. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. When you start to see that in quietude, <clears throat> it, it changes, how do I say this so simply? It changes, are you following along? Okay. It changes the way your neurology, if you will, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but it, you might have a better way of saying this, but 
it changes the way your brain imprints patterns. So it actually changes the grooves of your psychology and physiology. You see? So it's kind of like, you know when you go cross-country skiing? So this is, I, I don't know, I've never gone cross-country skiing, but I, I'm going to pretend that, so just bear with me. And you know how when you're going cross-country skiing, there's these grooves, right? And you know it's really easy to ski in the grooves. But if you want to try and like go off and create a new groove, it's really, really hard to create a new groove, right? So it's like this in our brains. Our brains have these grooves or these body maps even that we were talking about. And our bodies too, not, our brain is our body. It's not up here. And it's just like when you internally rotate, there's grooves, right? And there's these maps that are way older than your life, okay? In stillness, when you start to reduce your reactivity it interrupts those old grooves, okay? And it plants new grooves, okay? Right? We all know this, right? So it's like, if you're having a really hard day, you really, really, really want sweets, right? You're having a hard day. What's the thing you usually do? You don't eat well or you don't eat. Right? But let's do the, like, sweet thing. That's my thing. So you go for sweets, okay? <coughs> if you're able, because you've been taking the mindfulness-based stress reduction course at Bara Yoga, if you've been able to learn how when um, you're feeling down, to recognize, oh, I'm feeling down, and have a little more space around it, and just be calmer in it, then you'll notice, oh, I really want the sweet. Like, really, really want the sweet. Because that's the, the ski track. I really want the sweet right now. But now you have this practice of being able to feel your feelings and not identify with them and just feel your breathing. And then you don't need the sweet. You can be like, oh, God, I'm just having a really bad day and I don't really, I, I want the sweet, but I'm not going to go get the sweet. Like the cramping. Yeah, same thing. So that's really, really helpful. And the can really have, helpful can, part... Can you have just half the sweet? Well, you can, because you have no control whatsoever. But <laughs> Or your learning is really slow. Um, May I ask you? Well, I just want to add a little bit more to it. The, the, the benefit of this is then, after some years of practice... You can go have a sweet, but there isn't like the compulsion in it like there used to be. You see? So it's not so pure like, oh, you're never going to have sweets again. It's like, no, now you can have a cigarette, and now you can have a glass of wine, and now you can go have fika. And like, it's okay. You know, you don't have to be like uptight anymore around all the rules. It's just there isn't compulsion. You know what I mean by that? There isn't like the, the thing in it. You know? um, so that's half of what is being said here. But first, Patrick. To me, this sounds like a control, not a new map, a new group. 
How can a new map can emerge from stillness? That's my... Well, it's a new map because you're not going into the old reaction. And it's so then it's not a new map, it's like no, un, no answer. Uh, it's like not following that map, but just... Correct, but in not following that map... Is a new map. Is a new map, is what <coughs> I'm suggesting. Okay. Now, everybody here would agree this sounds just like... I once taught to a group of psychiatrists in Cape Cod, and somebody said, this sounds like cognitive psychology on steroids. <laughs> Which I thought was the most amazing term. We're not going to get into it too much, but I just want to mention that there are different stages of samadhi. And I think this is an area where in some places like um, Brown University and um, University, uh, Richie Davison's lab in Madison, Wisconsin, where they're doing some really interesting work, which is that Patanjali then says, and, I, and we're not going to get too much into it, but I just want to mention it, is that when you keep going down this route of stillness, it actually stops producing karma. That actually things get so still that you stop producing new grooves in the brain. And that neuroscientists are putting meditators in fMRI machines to test this out. And I've been in one of the machines and they're really cool. They're called functional MRI machines. And in some of the machines, the screen is inside the machine. So the meditators can sit in meditation, or lie in meditation, and you can watch your brain in real time while you're meditating. It's like pretty cool kind of technology. And so there's a lot of work trying to develop this a little bit. So that you can see if, oh wow, like is my technique working? It's kind of fascinating. Um, and the word for this is uh, bija, which is a, a seed, right? Is that we're always planting new seeds, but it seems like you can get so still that new seeds aren't being planted. Is this possible? That's what it was about. That's what you're talking about, yeah. Uh, Philippa, you had your hand up before. Mm -hmm. um, hmm, yeah, you, you said there's um, no way out, and it reminded me actually of the song David Gilmore. Do you know it? There's no way out of there. When you get in, you're in for good. Oh. I love that song. It's so cool. That's good. So, is anyone related to David Gilmore? And now we have to. Talk about it. Okay. <laughs> so it's that. That's because that's how I'm feeling now. There's there's no way. Even when you're having this stillness experience, or when you have the experience of subject becoming object, you're wholeheartedly there. Um, there's still something there, some part of mind that is registering, because the experience stays registered somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and if you're out in the street and you, it happens to you, then you still walk. You're still functional. Mm -hmm. So. Um, well, one part is what is that? What is mm -hmm. that mind under the self? Mm -hmm. And um, also, um, 
a bliss, a blissful, like how can there not be samadhi other than being in total blissful state, as the text texts talk, because they really feel mm -hmm. like there is no other uh, self, but I can only see that if there's total bliss, and then in my opinion, then nothing would be registered either, because there's nothing to register. Really well, what about, there. I don't know that, no, I don't know, because like, what about, what about if you're really, really lonely? You're really lonely. Has anyone had this this yeah. experience? You're really lonely, and then you just say, okay, I went to that Michael Stone workshop, and he said, I can actually enter the loneliness. Even though I'm scared of it, and even though I want to cover it up with Netflix. I can actually, right now, sit in the middle of loneliness and just breathe it. Okay, so I'm going to try it. So you get out your cushion, you light a candle, you wear black, you start breathing, and then you realize, oh God, i got to get up. Like, I don't want to sit here. And so you see your cigarettes on the fireplace, and you're just about to get up to go have a smoke, and, but then you're like, oh, no, no, no. Intimate with the loneliness. So then you breathe, and then you're like really scared. Because you've probably never really done this. So then you start breathing and you really start feeling 50% loneliness, 60% loneliness. So there's an app that Martin's developing for this, 70% loneliness, 80%. And then there's just pure loneliness, but it's not happening to you. It doesn't feel like it's happening, it's just loneliness. And then this weird things happen when you do this practice. You have loneliness samadhi, where there's just the experience of loneliness with nobody that it's happening to, no need to escape, and then it stops, and it's gone. Mm -hmm. And then you realize, not only was it impermanent, but maybe, this is the hypothesis I want you guys to check out, Maybe the ongoingness of loneliness is happening because I'm fighting it. Like maybe if I could open to loneliness, it would move through much faster. But maybe because I'm always like, like not really wanting to feel it and not really letting it kind of move, that I'm kind of keeping it around a lot longer. And this is what tends to happen. You, you feel lonely. You don't really know what to do with it. So like you go shopping and like it kind of felt pretty good, but it's like still lonely. So then you get on Netflix. You finish every episode of Stranger Things. Do you have that yet? Yeah, let's finish it. God. Best show ever. Sorry, if you haven't got the idea, I've seen two shows in about five years. <laughs> Downton Abbey and Stranger Things. <laughs> um, and then you start to recognize that all these moves are convenient ways of not feeling the samadhi of loneliness. 
So this is all to say, like, opening to dukkha, opening to suffering, feels like suffering. Mm -hmm. Some people are like, yeah, I'm really Buddhist, and like, I open to dukkha. Well, like, no, actually. If you open up to experience, it feels like experience. It's not so blissy. So good luck, everybody. Uh, <laughs> good luck. You need, you need a little bit of luck, actually. So it takes a lot of courage to uh, do this practice because it means you have to renounce um, <coughs> these escape habits. You know this word renunciation actually comes from the word annunciation, to announce, to make a vow, to, to say yes, actually. Yes, this is a more interesting path. So, yes? I was just uh, reflecting. I, I'm very happy that you mentioned this with loneliness and so because for me it's also one aspect is also this non-attachment to the story that we are having or uh, always to have a kind of blissful and, you know, spacious experience but just to be able to stay with what it is. So, mm -hmm. um, it's very difficult. But it yeah. is for me in a way like non-attachment yeah. as well. Yeah. Which is the most difficult thing, I think, personally. Mm -hmm. So hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So hard. I have this a lot with my mom. I love my mom. I find sometimes when I hang out a lot with my mom, which I'm about to do in two days, um, I find it hard to have new conversations. I find like we tend to go into the same conversations. And it's not really just on her side. It's like something about the mix <coughs> where we tend to always like go into the same conversation. And so I'm really trying to be super present with my mom so that I don't go into like the same communication style. And then I notice that when I do that, she starts doing it. And in the past year, we've had incredible conversations, like the best we've ever had in my whole life. And I'm just really present with her. And then she gets super present. And then sometimes I get a little uncomfortable because it's not the mom that I know. It's like she just goes off. She's, she's really right now into swearing when we're together. <laughs> and my mom is like really careful. And, and she's swearing all the time. Yeah. I said to her, for example, can I tell you this? This is, this is terrible that I tell you these stories, but no, I actually can't even tell you the story. She did a lot of swearing. Never mind. It seems like a really good time to take a break. <laughs> because I want something sweet. <laughs> So, um, can we take, because we finish at 3, and it's already 2.15, and I want to do some practices together. So, could we take just a five-minute break, and then we're going to do some practices together. And like yesterday, you don't need your cushion, you don't need anything. We're just going to have an empty room.
Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.